This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Greenpeace is our focus today. Climate action is a big part of their work and they're an international organisation. If you look up their website, you will see, I think you'll be surprised to see where you might fit in. If you are feeling alone and worried about what can be done about climate change, this show will give you an idea of what you can achieve with well-organised and strategic collective action. We'll hear from Christine Rose in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Their Greenpeace group took the climate disaster of Hurricane Gabrielle to the Auckland headquarters of Fonterra. They decorated its glass front with scenes from the hurricane and piled up the debris from houses where people had been pushed out by floods and landslides. The whole thing was festooned with tape saying, climate crime scene. And if you are wondering how intensive dairy farming affects climate change, hang in there for Christine's scintillating explanation. Greenpeace is also active on the oceans, and we will start with David Ritter, CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, talking about the Global Oceans Treaty and the Rainbow Warriors' trip to Western Australian waters to confront Woodside. We also celebrate how an idea that started in a classroom in Vanuatu has reached the ears of the International Court of Justice. Now, people sometimes criticise the Climate Action Show because it's too educational and serious. Well, I'm not going to apologise for that. This week, the Liddell Power Station in New South Wales is closing down and most journalists gave me the impression that this just happened out of thin air. But if you listen tonight, David Ritter will give you a masterclass on how a grassroots campaign changed everything. They rebadged AGL as Australia's greatest liability. They were taken to court and they won. It's a classic story of climate action. I got a message from David Ritter saying, quote, it's an historic win. Tears are rolling down my cheeks. After talks, broken negotiations, delays, heartbreaks, 
world governments have finally landed a global ocean treaty. So in the week that also marks another win for the transition to a safer climate and New South Wales sees the closure of AGL's Liddell Power Station, I have invited the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, David Ritter, to tell us how these wins have been achieved. Welcome, David. Tell us first what the Global Ocean Treaty means for the climate. Well, um, look, <laughs> the, the tears uh, were very real about the Global Oceans Treaty being signed. Um, literally the very first campaign I ever worked on for Greenpeace in London and the very first Greenpeace report I ever held in my hands was a report called Roadmap to Recovery um, that was uh, produced by a, a scientist, Professor Callum Roberts, in partnership with Greenpeace in the United Kingdom roughly two decades ago. And what, what that elapse of time signifies is just the fundamental importance of that commitment to achieving the really significant breakthroughs that takes the persistence of thousands of people over years. And so you fast forward to the announcement of the, um, uh, the Global Oceans Treaty uh, uh, this year, and it creates a gateway for the first time for vast swathes of the high seas, which have been pretty lawless places, uh, to become protected uh, through high seas marine sanctuaries um, which is what is absolutely essential for our oceans to be able to recover. So it really is an extraordinary uh, historic um, moment. Um, and now there's more work to follow up as we uh, need to get the treaty ratified um, in enough countries to bring it into operation. But does it have an impact on the climate? Because we know the ocean is a huge carbon sink and um, it, it's I, I just don't see the connection between this ocean treaty and improving the benefits the ocean gives us well there's an old an old phrase of healthy climate healthy ocean or, or healthy ocean healthy climate and healthy oceans sequester more carbon healthy oceans are more resilient ecosystems in the context of climate uh, healthy oceans also uh, better it's for sustaining local communities um, which uh, themselves become more vulnerable because of climate impacts. And um, the, the great kelp forests of the oceans, um, the reefs of the oceans, um, you know, these have climate benefits, but they also um, simply promote the, the ocean's resilience itself. So, so in a way, to, to split out the climate from um, uh, uh, the environment more broadly always feels like a sort of almost a bit of a false dichotomy in a way. Hmm. Well, look, Fukushima radioactive wastewater is scheduled to be released into the Pacific this year, and listeners will remember the distress of Pacific Islanders that I interviewed last November. I went to a conference in um, Dunedin, and they were just, they just couldn't say enough how frightened they were of this, you know, extra pollution, radioactive pollution. Will this new ocean treaty have power to stop that sort of thing? Well, as far as I and look, I'm I'm absolutely not uh, a top academic expert on the the Oceans Treaty, but as far as I know, the the uh, intent of the Global Oceans Treaty is really about the high seas, 
and uh, about the creating the ability to establish those no-take um, or, or, or uh... sorry, just excuse me a moment. That's all right. Sorry, I'll just um, go that again. Yeah. Um, to establish those uh, marine sanctuaries in the high seas where the oceans are protected. Um, when it comes to nations doing things that are environmentally destructive within their own um, EZs, within their own um, uh, national waters, then we're still very heavily reliant on national laws subject to whatever other conventions nation states have signed up to. So um, I'd, I'd need to I'd need to take a look at uh, a complex of, uh, of yeah. laws before I could give you a, a, a complete answer to that one. Okay, thank you. Yes, it is very contested just at the moment. The science is crystal clear. You've only got to turn on the telly every night and you can see it. So why are Woodside, this company, wanting to produce so much poisonous gas which will build the temperature problems of the climate crisis over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, and even planning out past 2050. It is a corporate, moral and cultural crime that they are committing. It's time for Woodside to stop. It's time to put whales, marine life and our future ahead of greenhouse gas emissions and money. This is dangerous, it's polluting and it must stop now. Um, look, still on the sea, tell us about, uh, I know the Rainbow Warrior ship is taking on the fossil fuel giant Woodside down the coast of Western Australia. Tell us how that's going to happen. This is this one's really, uh, really very personal for me, Vivian. Um, I, I'm a West Australian. I grew up in Perth and when I was in grade one <laughs> at Kelmscott Primary School, um, one of the stories of the time was about community members in the beautiful West Australian seaside town of Albany who were really distressed that commercial whaling was continuing in Australian waters and were determined to do something about it. And so uh, began taking uh, action to uh, end commercial whaling in Australian waters, finally. And some of the people who were among those community members um, uh, and visitors who took action went on to form Greenpeace in Australia and the Pacific. So the birthplace of Greenpeace in Australia is in Albany, Western Australia, and was um, and I remember that from uh, th those times from, uh, from when I was uh, a little kid at Kelmscott Primary School. So it's with real um, excitement and, and <laughs> a good degree of emotion that that we're welcoming our uh, iconic flagship, the Rainbow Warrior, into Albany this weekend to celebrate the 45-year anniversary of the end of commercial whaling in Australian waters to celebrate what that tells us about the social progress that is possible because the, our, the West Australian waters have... Um, are now full of the whale populations that have resurged because people power ended commercial whaling and then wise governments in Australia backed in um, what the people were, were uh, demanding. Um, and then the, the, the ship will join with local communities in celebrating how magnificent, how wonderful our, our West Australian oceans are 
and then document and draw to attention the great contemporary threat to our whales, the great contemporary threat to our beautiful coastlines, to our magnificent reefs. And that, that great contemporary threat is Woodside. It is that um, monstrous offshore gas exploration. So it's really drawing that thread between the threats to the whales of the past and the threats to the whales of today. Yeah, well, the gas is the threat to the climate, and I imagine the threat to the whales is more like the sonic booms undersea and the just the disturbance of their pathways. Is that it? Well, look, it's a mixture of both. I mean, the, the, the gas is, as you say, a terrible threat to our climate. If, if Woodside's Burrup Hub is completed, it's the largest climate polluting development um, that's proposed currently anywhere in Australia. If it's fully completed, it would produce climate pollution equivalent to more than 12 times Australia's uh, annual domestic carbon pollution. Really? Now, whales also oh. um, can't easily adapt to the, the collapsing ecosystems of, of warming oceans. So climate change obviously poses a threat to whales. But, but you're right, there's also a very direct threat to the marine environment from uh, Woodside's expansion plans, from the, um, uh, the, the uh, sonic uh, blasting that they do underwater, which literally letting off um, explosives uh, which can deafen whales um, and a deaf whale is unfortunately a, a dead whale and we're talking about the migratory routes of the pygmy blue whale as well as various other whales in the area um, and then Woodside's own modelling shows that potentially spills uh, could damage up to eight protected marine areas off the West Australian coast if they went ahead and um, drilled the browse gas field that's very very proximate to the scott reef which is one of the um best condition reefs anywhere around australia's coastline so there's there, there is as you say um monstrous consequences for the climate and very direct threats to our wonderful west australian oceans yeah well thank you david look three A lot of Greenpeace's work is really flamboyant, risky and colourful around the world. You know, people know Greenpeace for climbing onto things. People get arrested, like those protesting against Arctic oil drilling, and they spent three months in a Russian jail, I think. But how do these actions change things, change societies, change the social licence? How do they, a lot of people disapprove of it, but how do you think they change things? Well, I think that um, in, in Australia, we've got such an extraordinary track record of um, peaceful direct action, of peaceful civil disobedience, very directly contributing to um, the sort of, of, of social, environmental, political reforms that we now just take for granted, um, that most, most people, when they stop to think about it, even for a moment, really do accept that that kind of peaceful protest absolutely has a role in our democracy, in our society to make things better. And the, the whales are a terrific example. Um, the actions of those community members who took to the small craft, took to the Zodiacs to get in the way of the harpoons, that wasn't lawful. But who today would uh, not look at those 
magnificent whale swimming past and not thank with all their heart uh, those protesters who took to their little boats uh, off the coast of Albany to ensure that today there are West Australian kids, kids all around Australia who can watch the whale swim past. Or to use a very different example, you know, I'm, I live in Sydney these days and every year we celebrate how wonderful the Mardi Gras is as a celebration of, of diversity and of human freedom. And it's within the lifetimes of plenty of us around that that was an illegal assembly where there was terrible police brutality. Now, again, which of us doesn't feel enormous gratitude at those, um, you know, the, those those defenders of human freedom and liberty who were prepared to take a stand um, uh, back when the the first Mardi Gras marches were held? So. Look, I just, I just think we, we really, um, we really, as a society, do accept in our hearts that those kinds of, of peaceful protests really have a role in winning the rights, the freedoms, the advances that we do all now take for granted. But it's also worth saying that there's a whole lot of stuff that that Greenpeace does that is, of course, um, not sort of out there quite as flamboyantly as as you, you say. Um, there is the report writing, there is the scientific research, there's the litigation, there's the there's the meeting um, uh, the meetings that occur across the the boardroom table, um, and there's all of the work that's done by volunteers and activists within their communities, spreading the word every day. So it's it really is a uh, a multifaceted um, uh, exercise to to run a, a major campaign. Yeah. Well, we're talking to David Ritter. He's the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. So, David, you've mentioned the research, and I and I have benefited your research. I rang one of your researchers once. I was in Port Augusta, and I, you know, they were pulling down the power station there, and I was reporting on that. And I thought, oh, I don't know something. And I rang him up and he quickly just told me what I needed to know. And I was very grateful that he was right across it. So Greenpeace does a lot of research and it is really helping a lot of groups, I think, um, what you do. But let's now move to the Liddell Power Station. It's closing this week, but that is not just because of a corporate decision. Uh, there was a Greenpeace Research Commission from Reputex, I think about two years ago, called Cold Faced. And then AGL took you to court. There was a film called Power Play, which I will link to the podcast. Then Mike Cannon Brooks came in and there was an investor revolt at AGL. And I want listeners to know that AGL did not change by magic or just by market forces. This is a great story of climate action. Can you tell it to our listeners, please? I agree with you. It is a wonderful story of climate action. And it is a story with very deep roots because for many years, community members have been working to change AGL away from coal-burning power stations. So it's a story with deep roots. The most recent kind of chapter of that that, that uh, you're referring to um, sort of begins with the launch of a campaign uh, around AGL um, at roughly in... in roughly the second quarter of um, 2021. And it was a campaign that was launched because AGL is responsible for roughly 8 to 10% of Australia's domestic carbon emissions. So they're a massive polluter. 
And the three um, stations they then had in operation, they weren't proposing to close the last of them, Luoyang A, massive polluting beast of a thing, until almost 2050. Now, that contrasts with what uh, uh, the best uh, international advice says, which is that Australia needs to be off coal by, by 2030 at the latest. And what our research told us, what, what the research that Greenpeace did told us was that there was a widespread view in the community that actually AGL were regarded as making good progress on clean energy. So uh, their greenwashing had worked. So what that told us very clearly is that there was a job that Greenpeace was well suited to doing in deep collaboration with others because collaborating with other organisations and with communities and you know with professional organisations, that, that kind of collaboration is hardwired into our theory of change because we are all stronger when we collaborate together. But there was a particular job that Greenpeace was well suited to. And so we launched a campaign under the tagline, Australia's Greatest Liability, um, to really uh, highlight the fact that this company was not on the path to clean energy, that it was Australia's dirtiest um, uh, company in terms of its coal burning uh, pollution. And then the next um, <laughs> the next uh, year or so was a was a fantastic ride of um, of activism and of campaigning. Uh, AGL decided to sue us for some ads that we ran, which uh, resulted in um, them drawing a very large amount of attention to themselves as Australia's worst uh, domestic climate polluter, and they overwhelmingly lost the court case. We still can't quite work out who inside AGL decided it was a good idea to <laughs> sue an environmental charity, but but there they went. Um, a school striker ran for the AGL board, um, an 18-year-old, and that was a you know gave a fantastic platform to really talk about the fact that the company was going nowhere fast on decarbonisation. There was a shareholder revolt at that meeting. Um, the company's own uh, plans were uh, rejected by a majority of, of shareholders. Um, there was some some. Um, uh, characteristically flamboyant things in there as well. Uh, at one point, uh, we turned up at AGL's headquarters with a giant inflatable piece of coal. Some people were, quite, uh, were, were slightly unkind about that, suggesting it looked like a giant inflatable piece of brown something else. But I can assure your listeners it was intended to be a giant inflatable piece of coal. Um, there was a whole lot of um, uh, uh, online activism and, and offline um, community work. Um, and the story really is told in that documentary you mentioned, uh, Power Play. And, and what that's designed to do is to show, um, to, to lift the lid and to show the behind the scenes thinking about how the campaign was designed, how it was executed, um, how we responded to, to current events and to um, the way that the company itself was responding. Because as you say, these things don't happen by accident. The great social, political, economic um, reforms we see in these countries that, that, that make the place better to live in, that make it fairer, that make it, um, uh, uh, that take us forward, there are always tens of thousands of human hands and hearts behind these, doing the work, doing the invisible labour, designing the campaigns, folding the letters, 
turning up at the stalls, turning up at the protests. This is what drives change in our society. And it's something that there's often, I think, a real reticence among the powerful to uh, acknowledge that these things um, do not happen, as you say, by accident. They happen because of the creativity, because of the strategy um, that that uh, that is pursued by um, uh, by folks working together and imagining a, a better world. Yeah, and it's not just that they're reticent. They've also got a very well-paid media that seems to just support a kind of middle-of-the-road all these things just happen attitude. I mean, most people think the narrative was that Mike Cannon Brooks, who's a billionaire, came in and bought a major share in AGL and then things started to crumble there. But, you know, all of these citizens behind it, which are dramatised in your film Power Play, didn't seem to uh, hit the media yesterday when they were talking about Liddell and they just talked still doubtful whether renewable energy can take over, still doubtful whether you know, this is a good, I think, good thing to shut this power station down. You know, we're, there's still this huge resistance to it. And I, I love it that Greenpeace just mobilises so many people and creative people to give a counter-narrative. You've made such an important point, and I want to do it, do it justice, Vivian, that the the participation of, of Mike Cannonbrooks's um, investment vehicle and also other investors because there were other investors who also were, were significant movers on AGL. It was a really big part of the story and I think that it, it itself is a moment of a kind of almost a lot, an alliance of common interest of community and capital but you don't you don't achieve that with just capital alone. And quite often, I think we see situations where community moves the conditions for investment. And as far as capital is concerned, that's just the change in investment conditions. But again, if you dig beneath the surface, what you see is that community activism has changed the rules for capital, has changed the conditions for capital. And so I think really... You know, digging beneath the surface of you, as you have urged us to to do, and to see that interrelationship is is so important. So, hello, I'm Rory McLeod. I live in Scotland, and I love radio. I can do the washing up. I could be in the garden. I could be in the car driving. Well, I'm listening to 3CR Radical Radio. It's a subscription radio, community radio on 8:55 a.m. We do stream at 3cr.org.au, so you can become a member and donate money. So let's move on to another win today, which I would like to celebrate, especially because it's in the Pacific and um, the Republic of Vanuatu and its many allies persuaded the United Nations to call on the International Court of Justice to give something called an advisory opinion. Well, this was also after long campaigning, but I cannot really get a clear idea of what it is, this advisory opinion, and if it will take us any closer to stopping the climate criminals. Can you explain that a bit to us? Uh, I would be thrilled to. But yeah, look, the the it, again, it's a really historic moment, and uh, it, it it is worth just reflecting as we see the sort of um, the river of of really challenging scientific data that comes through every day, and some of the political reverses that we always experience because 
the, the road is never a smooth one, that we have seen just these historic steps forward this year. And the decision of the United Nations General Assembly to refer the uh, request for an advisory opinion to the International Court of Justice is one of those historic moments. It is, it is an idea that came from a classroom in Vanuatu. Here is the Prime Minister of Vanuatu. Excellencies, today we have witnessed the win for climate change of epic proportions. I am proud beyond measure that today the United Nations General Assembly has overwhelmingly adopted Vanuatu's resolution on climate change and human rights. For more than 30 years, most countries have considered that their only obligations on climate action are found within the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. But friends, the UNFCCC is only one international legal instrument and one in which there are few legally enforceable obligations. That is why we see time and time again the pledges, promises and commitments made under the Paris Agreement seem to take us dangerously closer to the limit of 1.5 degrees. But today, the nations of the world asked a critical set of questions on climate obligations to the world's highest judicial body, the United Nations International Court of Justice. The court will help to clarify the other legal instruments under international law that also contain climate obligations. Importantly, the court will tell us what the legal consequences are for the states that disregard these laws and cause climate and environmental harm. The idea has been on a, on a journey of justice, a journey of driven by love of place and love of community and love of planet that has ended up in the UN General Assembly where for the first time in the history of that organisation, there was a consensual referral. So every no, no country objected. Every country uh, was part of the consensual referral to the International Court of Justice. And what the, the ICJ will do is they will be presented with a case by states party. And it has been absolutely led by the, the great ocean states of the Pacific and particularly the uh, particularly Vanuatu. And the International Court of Justice will make a ruling on the obligations of states to protect human rights in the face of climate change. Now, the potential significance of that is enormous because although it is only an advisory opinion, it, it is of weight and significance in every legal jurisdiction on the planet and in international law. So if we can get a strong opinion, a strong opinion of, of, of what the law of our planet is to protect from climate damage, it's like giving a new instrument of progress to every lawyer in every country in the world. And there are some jurisdictions where international law is automatically incorporated into domestic law, but in every other, like Australia, it, it becomes an influential precedent. So it really is a, a big moment and potentially another really, really significant 
plank in in giving us a sort of deck on which uh on which we can um uh, uh make some progress towards a flourishing future well thank you that's really clear well thank you david for your transformative work with greenpeace under your leadership i think a lot of creativity has been unleashed and solid research so listeners just watch that video power play and you will see the imagination and the variety of Greenpeace people, you know, who pursue these campaigns. And today we're celebrating the win in the close down of AGL's Liddell Power Station and the Great Ocean Treaty, Global Ocean Treaty. So thank you very much, David. Thanks so much, Vivian. It's always wonderful to catch up for a chat. Yeah, thank you very much. So that was David Ritter. A tragedy is about to unfold on the coastline of Western Australia. In critical whale habitat, fossil fuel company Woodside is planning a mega risky deep sea gas drilling project, the most climate polluting ever proposed in Australia. We need to make a call. Choose whales, not Woodside. Woodside, what's up with their dirty Scarborough gas drilling project? It will release vast amounts of dirty, toxic gas and accelerate climate change, destroys the climate, poisons oceans and hurts whales. Can Woodside walk away? Yes. Renewable energy is already blowing gas and coal power out of the water. We just don't need it. Say no to Scarborough Gas. Act now. Choose Wales, not Woodside. Song is Utama, which means my child. We ask the question to ourselves. What are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet?
Olive. If this is a story about our islands, it is a story for the whole world. We're speaking today with Christine Rose from Greenpeace Aotearoa, New Zealand. They took action against New Zealand's biggest climate polluter, Fonterra. And the context was the terrible floods I reported on last month of um, in the North Island of New Zealand, especially caused by Hurricane Gabrielle, which smashed the North Island. And so the Greenpeace people turned the headquarters of Fonterra, Auckland, into a virtual flood zone. And Christine was one of the main people there. And I'd like you to tell us, Christine, who Fonterra is, number one. Like, what does the word Fonterra really, really mean to you? And why did you do it? Thanks. Fonterra is New Zealand's largest uh, export company. I think it's probably one of our biggest domestic companies. And um, one of, it's, I think, the largest dairy exporter in the world. So despite New Zealand being quite small and far away from our trading partners, this is a massive corporate giant. It's a cooperative, which means that often the company uses its farmer shareholders as a shield to um, greenwash its actions and impacts on the environment, and in particular on the climate. Because Fonterra has been named as New Zealand's worst climate polluter for the second year in a row, and yesterday they also... Um, published their interim results for 2023, so half-year profits of half a billion dollars. So they're making a lot of money on a lot of environmental um, impacts, which are barely regulated by the New Zealand government. And when it comes to agriculture and climate change, the agricultural sector in New Zealand is exempt from the emissions trading scheme, which is New Zealand government's um, main tool for managing emissions. So agriculture has been exempt um, forever and they, when uh, the previous Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern from the Labour government came in, they promised that they would bring agriculture into the emissions trading scheme. But very quickly those intentions were um, subverted or misaligned and so they actually sat down with the agri-industry and developed, uh, and the agri-industry was able to develop its own scheme. And that um, actually still keeps agriculture out of the main emissions trading scheme and uh, provides more rewards, financial rewards, um, than levies they are paying. And actually, they've got these exemptions that mean that they don't have to pay anything until 2025. And when they do have to pay, it will be 1%, 1% of their emissions. And um, that will be phased in over the next 100 years. So in 100 years' time, they might be paying for their full emissions, but um, in the meantime, as we've seen from recent devastating cyclones and floods, which have killed around 20 people, destroyed homes, houses down hillsides, and in my community, volunteer firefighters have been killed because of the landslides. And um, evidence out this week shows that these cyclones and storms are likely to have 20 to 30 percent more uh, sorry 20 to 30 percent more rainfall because of man-made climate change so there's this really clear link between the gross emissions um, and these these are huge emissions from Fonterra and, um, right through to the impacts of um, these storms on people's livelihoods yeah well 
this week I've just been in court um, listening and to the case of people who stopped the Harbour Bridge traffic. Similar sort of action, like bring the connection between climate change to the financial centre of, um, you know, Australia. And, and one of those people was a firefighter. He was a big, tall, healthy looking man. He, and he had just taken upon himself this very dramatic action. I think it's these people who see the front line and, and people campaigners bringing the two stories together because the media doesn't usually like to do that. They don't like to connect the emissions and the, the events, the climate events that happen. So you dramatised it. I love that thing you said, you, know, you sort of brought the damage, return to sender, to the Fonterra. Just tell us how you thought, how you cooked up that idea, you know, when you were talking about it. How did you figure out to make it so theatrical? That's what grabbed my attention because it really is trying to get media attention but public knowledge because I imagine Fonterra has a very good image in many people's minds of, you know, supplying all this milk and being such a, you know, New Zealand's being such a provider of, of agricultural good <laughs> to the world. But now that it's turning out so bad on the climate and bad on your landscape, tell us a bit about the, you know, that dramatic, dramatic moment, how you planned it. Well, it was on the back of the floods, um, you know, which have been so devastating. And um, it certainly impacted my community, uh, the flooding and the, and people are still homeless and our communities will never be the same again. So it's very real. And one of our Greenpeace crew is also a volunteer firefighter. So he's out there on the front line as well. And so um, we feel this very deeply. And um, it's not just the floods, but, you know, we're Southlands in its third drought in three years, the worst drought ever. Every every month seems to have a new climate disaster. And you're right that Fonterra and agriculture generally in New Zealand, they, they, they've got a great corporate machine that um, is really good at the greenwashing and telling people how Fonterra is feeding the world. But actually, most of their product, 96% of their products are exported and um, a majority of it, of it is in milk, dried milk powder that is the core ingredient in confectionery. So it's not feeding the world staples, it's feeding um, you know, the, the other corporate um, junk food producers for mm -hmm. their junk food. Mm. So, um, so we've got all these myths that we have to combat and it's a bit of a new tactic for us um, to come back to Fonterra. We previously did um, around the palm kernel extract issue because Fonterra in New Zealand is the biggest user of palm kernel extract to feed to cows in the world because we've just got so many cows that nature can't sustain that many animals so we've got to import these products that are causing deforestation elsewhere. So um, Fonterra you know we've decided to refocus our strategy and look directly at this really iconic apex climate polluter in New Zealand Mm. And so it was in, within that backdrop that we were considering what we would do um, to raise awareness of the privileged status that big dairy has in New Zealand. You know, it, it was so tragic to see so many thousands of people's homes, all their contents discarded on the street. You know, their lives had had to be abandoned because of, you know, that um, in some parts of New Zealand, the floodwaters reached right to the apex of people's roofs roofs and they were stranded on their roofs for you know five six up to eight hours before they could be rescued and mm -hmm. so across the north island these mountains of people's beloved belongings and and you know often the people that were most affected they're not wealthy people you know they 
they um, often they're not insured. You know, we've got a housing shortage in New Zealand, so um, often you know these are families that are all crammed into small houses, and now everything that they have is wrecked because of contaminated water. So in some ways, even though it was really uh, theatrical, it's it's incredibly real. And so we went round and collected the abandoned household goods, and they were things like people's teddy bears, you know, children's toys. Mm. people's beds so really really intimate belongings from people that they just had to throw away and leave abandoned on the streets but we also provided a backdrop of flooding um you know because at the moment Fonterra is very clearly externalizing its costs onto the rest of New Zealand society and the environment mm. and so um we wanted to bring those impacts back to those corporate headquarters which is why we covered the whole external facade, all these glass windows, typical sort of, you know, corporate facade of all this glass, you know, almost like they're transparent, but actually um, Fonterra lacks transparency because they only report on a certain portion of their emissions anyway, and that's the processing emissions, not the production emissions. And um, and they're still New Zealand's biggest climate polluter. So, um so we put these big facades up all around the outside of the building to represent the flooding. And it, it looked really great. It really looked like floodwaters, you know, a metre and a half high. And um, and then the deposits of these really personal household belongings in front. And it was all cordoned off with um, climate crime scene tape. So it was this incredible package and really moving for us all involved to, um, you know, to take those the ruined remains of people's lives back to that corporate polluter. Yeah. I think it's very poignant. And it's, again, this thing of crime, you know, climate crime. Yes, last week in the court, um, that's the same thing. People outside were saying, arrest the real criminals. And we had a lot of police there as if we were going to be rioting. Well, not really. We were eloquently expressing what was happening inside. Fortunately, it was a good outcome. But you said before that Frontier is very good at greenwashing. And they did say after this, you know, many of their farmer shareholders were impacted by the floods and they are all too aware of climate change. And they say they are investing a billion dollars in sustainability and methane reduction. Well, can you um, <laughs> debrief us from that comment or is it is it true that they are doing that? Uh, some of their um, methane reduction and climate adaptation responses are funded by the government, so by taxpayers, um, from funds that they contribute nothing towards. So the Climate Emergency Response Fund, for example, uh, which was announced last year, they got over $300 million from that, and yet they contribute nothing to it because they're outside the emissions trading scheme. So, um, you know, there's, again, the, you know, society's bearing the cost while they bank on the profits and, and have this work subsidised. Um, and also, you know, they talk about the billion dollars in sustainability, but they didn't talk about what those programmes look like or over what period that money's being spent. And often, um, you know, they, they have these um, industry initiatives that when you uh, are in a position to judge the outcomes, it's, it's just more greenwashing. And so we've seen this before when public awareness of the the role of big dairy in contaminating our freshwater rivers was revealed. Sorry, I've got a rabbit on my fireplace among my my treasures. Oh, sorry, 
he's, That's right. he's well, trashing the place. Um, so when Fonterra, when, um, when there was a lot of pressure because so many of our rivers have been destroyed because of dairy intensification, which has happened over in just in recent decades, um, there was all this pressure on. And so Fonterra said, oh, well, we're going to develop these sustainability initiatives and we're going to work with the industry to fence stream margins and actually in that, it looked really good but in that time the water quality of our rivers deteriorated so that 85% of our rivers now are uh, they breach different environmental standards and so this has been the story of big dairy in New Zealand over the last 30 years the tipping points get reached and Fonterra finally under pressure says I oh, will do something but it's never enough to actually change the situation because it's the intensive model that's the problem yeah. and so um, it's similar with a lot of these initiatives that they talk about it, it's really just a screenwashing to save their corporate image and um, you know when they talk about methane inhibitors and, and these other things um, there is no available treatment for methane that is applicable to the New Zealand farming situation and so there are companies here in New Zealand that are developing a seaweed um, methane uh, inhibitor, which is being used on Australian feedlots. But we, we are not a feedlot system. 96% of the um, farms are growing on, the cows are fed on grass um, and with the PKE palm kernel supplements. Um, but methane, methane inhibitors do not work in that environment. So, you know, it's techno-fix uh, magic bullet solutions that just are not and will not address the problem in the real world. And what we really need is for the government to regulate big dairy, to phase out synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and to reduce the dairy herd. That is the only viable option to address big dairy's climate pollution. Yeah. So too many cows, get rid of some Quite of them. Too many cows. And then yeah. too, uh, too much synthetic nitrogen, so use a, a natural fertiliser. So not that's right. Mm. And actually, a lot of these, um, a lot of these soil types just shouldn't have cattle. And and you know now, as you will have, may have seen on your recent visit to New Zealand, even the high country dry land landscapes um, in the alpine areas are irrigated and fertilised and converted to dairy because the price of dairy products has gone up. And so there are these incentives in the absence of decent environmental regulations for farmers just to convert what it might have been low stocking rate um, sheep and beef to very high stocking rate levels, even in uh, habitats that are, there's no way that this farming, this type of farming should occur there. Yeah. And it's not sustainable, it'll erode the land. Look, just, just for the listeners, one clarification, the nitrogen fertilizer, how is that a, a climate impact? I know to dehydrate the milk, to make the powdered milk, they use coal-fired power. That's coal. But what's the other climate impact of the nitrogen fertiliser? Great question, because the impacts of synthetic nitrogen fertiliser have been largely invisible, except for Greenpeace's work here in Aotearoa. Um, so synthetic nitrogen fertiliser itself is a fossil fuel derivative. And... Um, we produce some of it here in New Zealand, but we import the most of it. And we, in New Zealand, the use of it increased by around 700% between 1990 and 2019. And it's um, applied at massive volumes on the pastures to supercharge the grass growth so that these 
huge number of cows can be maintained. And but it's a um, really significant greenhouse gas emitter in its own right. Um, what, what happens is when the cows eat the grass that's been fed on all this synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and the uh, you know digestive fermentation in the cow's tummy uh, changes it to nitrous oxide. And so then um, as they pee and poo onto the grass, um, it's released into the atmosphere, but it also works its way through the soil. And that's problematic because now across New Zealand, many communities are impacted by uh, water contamination so that their water now exceeds World Health Organization limits of what's safe to drink. So not only does synthetic nitrogen fertilizer create more emissions than the New Zealand domestic aviation sector, but it also enables this massive dairy herd growth and is contaminating both fresh and drinking water. Oh, thank you. Look, that's really clear. Thank you very much. We're talking to Christine Rose, Greenpeace Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, Christine, just to finish, um, there's another Greenpeace story. I don't know if you'd like to comment. The Greenpeace people were arrested um, I think on the high seas, as they tried to stop some shell infrastructure going to the North Sea oil drilling area. Uh, what happened there? Tell the bit the story about what happened to them. Well, in that case, um, the shell activists were raising awareness of the um, incredibly dangerous, but probably more widely known impacts of fossil fuel extraction up there in the North Sea and the need for these fossil fuel companies to pay for their damages. And uh, at the moment, you know, again, those costs are externalised. And, and you know, um, these companies have received windfall profits over recent years of huge, huge quantums. And um, so as we see, you know, it's often the poorer communities of the world that pay the worst impacts from, that, from climate change. So um, the occupation was to raise awareness of the that and um, it did lead to arrests but really successfully highlighted the role of these corporate polluters in um, jeopardising the future of life on earth. To end on a positive note, I hope you're going to tell me it is positive, it was reported that your new PM, Chris Hipkins, announced that the biofuels obligation bill will be dropped. Now that doesn't mean anything to Australian listeners. Can you tell us what biofuels obligation means and, and why that is it good news um it is good news uh because biofuels in new zealand uh, at risk diverting food crops to make energy uh, because the biofuels obligation required a certain amount of biofuels in our conventional fuel supplies actually food should be for feeding people it shouldn't be for fueling a transport fleet which is by nature uneconomic and unsustainable but this is in the context unfortunately this, this was a, a good policy to reject, but at the same time, the Prime Minister has also put on a, on a bonfire a whole lot of other important climate policies, such as reducing speed limits, a scheme that subsidised uh, our poorer people to be able to get rid of their clunky, old, inefficient cars and trade them in for EVs. And so actually, um, rather than this biofuels mandate rejection being a good thing in itself. It's actually just a whole scale rejection of climate policies that we're seeing under the new prime minister. So as a package, it's a real step backwards. And uh, um, we, we joke that um, that Chris, Chris Hipkins, the new prime minister, is rescinding Jacinda 
and the aspirations that she had for New Zealand to address its climate emissions. Mm. Well, when I was in New Zealand, campaigners, climate people told me, oh, well, don't be so starry-eyed about Jacinda Ardern. This is back before Christmas. And now I'm very sorry to see that she's left the political stage, but I hope she looks after herself and comes back on the international stage. That's my hope. But what, um, what, what's your view on, well, where New Zealand is heading in climate action? I mean, it sounded so good from Jacinda Ardern. It sounded like a big, clear pathway was in place. I imagine Hipkins will be pulling back and emphasising bread and butter issues. But what's your take on where New Zealand's You have to inspire us in Australia because we're so far behind you. <laughs> Say something to us. But I, I imagine it's been a big blow. But tell us where you think it's heading. Where are you? Thanks. Yeah, well, we were very disappointed in Jacinda ultimately because she was really good at presenting this positive image on the global stage but was not any good at implementing the changes needed to send New Zealand in the right direction. So that was really disappointing. A lot of broken hearts, I think. But it's made worse by Chris Hipkins, who um, is, is positioning himself much more to the centre-right. And he's saying he's saying it's bread and butter, but of course climate change is a bread and butter issue. And we're seeing, you know, people can't even afford butter in New Zealand, even though we're, you know, this huge producer of butter. And I guess the hope does lie, compared within Australia, that um, this week new polls uh, um, showed that 54% of New Zealanders want more urgent action on climate change. Um, but, but the contrast with Australia lies in that um, we don't get arrested for protesting about the climate. Well, we might get arrested, but there aren't rules. We don't have the same ag-gag rules that much of the world has. Mm. And... Um, I mean, we were really heartened to hear that the protesters on the Sydney Harbour Bridge um, have have been um, not treated too badly because we're really worried about the precedents where, you know, these people that are actually acting in the public interest can can be locked up for years. So, you know, that's really unjust. Um, so I think New Zealand's um, political culture that, you know, we, like we can know in Greenpeace that we can go and do an action and that we won't get beaten up by the police and that, um, you know, the the punishments are not too harsh. And so we are seeing a rebuilding of the climate movement. It, you know, did get a bit dispir dispirited um, during the Jacinda years, um, but we are back with force and we are mobilising and it's election year for us and we will make sure that this is a climate election and that climate change and its consequences are to the fore and that every politician knows that we're serious and that there is no action for the future of New Zealand without serious climate action on Big Dairy. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Christine. What a speech. <laughs> so we've been speaking to Greenpeace uh, person, uh, Christine Rose. She's in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You've been listening to the Climate Action Show. Thanks tonight to Greenpeace, around the world, and all its thousands of campaigners. A special thanks to David Ritter, who's the CEO of Greenpeace Australia New Zealand. And thank you to Christine Rose, who belongs to Greenpeace Aotearoa New Zealand. The music was by Small Island Big Sound. And we heard from Peter Garrett and the Prime Minister of Vanuatu in passing. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold. It's cold.
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR.